and around the world, you're locked in to the KGRA Digital Broadcast Station, and it's time for another edition of The Cameron Files with Grant Cameron, exclusively right here at home on KGRARadio.com. Tonight, Grant's got a very special guest. It's the world's preeminent UFO historian, uh, an author and publisher, Richard M. Dolan. Of course, everybody here at uh, home at KGRA knows who Richard is. If you don't know who Richard is and you have an interest in UFOs, then you definitely want to go to Richard Dolan Press and check out everything there on the website about Richard. It's time well spent. Uh, We're going to forego the updates as Grant is on the road again, and he's doing these shows um, uh, from a mobile platform. And uh, he is together with Richard, architects of the new Paradigm event, and he's got one in Toronto, one in Vancouver. They're both going to be up there. Uh, We're going to get right to it and introduce the host of The Cameron Files. Here's Grant Cameron. Good evening. It's Grant Cameron here with uh, another show, and I got a, a big show today. Uh, on the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of this month, I'm going to be at the Alien Cosmic Expo. And on the 30th of this month, I'm going to be in Vancouver at the Architects of the New Paradigm. And uh, my guest today is going to be there with me. And I'd like to uh, sort of introduce uh, Richard Dolan. And we should cut it a little short because we're on KGAR radio. And if people don't know who Richard Dolan is, they're probably on the wrong station. Uh, Richard's uh, one of the leading researchers, uh, historian. He's done uh, two books uh, on the the disclosure uh, subject, UFOs and National Security State, uh, AD After Disclosure, another book. Uh, He runs uh, Richard Dolan Press, puts out a number of uh, books, including one of the books I did uh, a few years back. He's got a show on Gaia. He's got a radio show on KGRA. And uh, he's been there, done that. So I'd like you to welcome uh, Richard to the show. How are you doing, Richard? Hi, Grant. Hey, it's great to be on your show. Yeah, super. And uh, yeah. it's it's great to have you on. Uh, it's, a, it's a hot time in the field. And I guess we're going to be discussing uh, the latest goings on. But first, I would like to congratulate you on your uh, marriage. And uh, my first question is going down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, thank uh, you, as you, by the way. Yes. Uh, my question to you is, uh, as you know, I have Desta who helps me do some stuff. The odd time she and I will travel to conferences and we're in the middle of nowhere here. So it takes us like 20 hours to drive anywhere. And usually after about eight hours, um, it, it gets so hot and uh, heavy with the conversation that it's almost time to pull over and call the cops. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, have you and uh, Tracy ever had a situation where you're having one of these Bohr uh, Einstein debates upon the nature of reality because she's uh, is she a remote viewer or an intuitive? How would you define her? She yeah, Tracy, first of all, is uh, absolutely just one of a kind, in my opinion. She is a professionally trained remote viewer and very good, very good. Uh, at some point, um, you or I or both or other people as well will want to interview her about this because, um, so Paul Elder was her, uh, her trainer. Paul Elder is a, is an instructor and trainer at the Monroe Institute right now and has been for many years. He's, he's absolutely world renowned. He trained Tracy and she, uh, for a number of years did, um, uh, multiple remote views per week on outbound targets frequently. So 
uh, that's like targets could be a thousand miles away or more. So she was doing high level uh, and and really well documented remote views on a regular basis and, and became really, really excellent at it. So now is she an intuitive as well? I would probably get, I would, I would probably say yes. Uh, that's a harder thing to measure, but um, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's a very, very big part. Uh, she's an experiencer. She, she's like all of, you know, you and she, of course, did a, a YouTube interview uh, back when we were at the Ozark conference and you had the right brain, left brain discussion with her. And in my view, um, she's just a classic right brain, intuitive experience. Oh, she's very logical. She's got a very, I mean, she's, it's not like she's just out there with no logical ideas. She's got a lot of them. Uh, she's a great communicator, but yeah, I would say she's intuitive and a remote viewer. And as far as arguments, I don't really think we have those. We have, we have great conversations every day. Uh So we're constantly, uh, kind of going back and forth about the nature of reality as we see it. I mean, the, the fact is that I, I don't really have any disagreements with the things that she can do. It's, it's things that I've incorporated into my worldview, for uh, a long time now. So the big thing that I try to do in understanding this crazy world of ours is to incorporate what I try to understand logically about the world. And that is what I try to understand in terms of factual evidence. What can I defend publicly to the world about the subject of UFOs and beyond? And then recognizing that um, there are elements about our world that are very hard to nail down scientifically, but they're still there. And so there's got to be, we have to have some nuance in my view and how we understand reality and, and not just say this is black, this is white. There are, um, there are areas where, in my view, our minds are um, still kind of working our way through. And, um, and so we have to be sort of forgiving with ourselves in terms of dogmatism, I guess is how I would put it. So, But to answer your question, I think that uh, I don't think we've really had a, a big argument at all over the nature of reality. I think what we have are really excellent conversations. Yeah. What, what has changed in terms of, say, view on consciousness, that aspect coming into it after you met her? That's a good question. I've. Um, it's not like I was ever uh, this hardcore nuts and bolts kind of person. I mean, even long before I did UFOs, um, I've studied philosophy my whole life. It's always been a very, very important part of, of my, um, my thinking, which is to um, try to understand the nature of what paradigms are and how um, our paradigms are, in a sense, a construction of our, our form of consciousness at the, that particular time. And, um, but I, I, I've always had a, a view of reality also that is um, one in which there is this thing out there called truth. There is a, there is a truth. So truth isn't entirely, in my view, anyway, what what I think it is. It's not an entirely subjective thing. I mean, otherwise, I, I don't think people would have arguments over uh, what happened on 9-11, for example, like that, because implicit in such types of debates is that there is an objective reality. It's there. And, and we believe that there's an objective reality because otherwise we wouldn't be arguing over what it is. Um, so I've always believed that there's there's a reality that's independent of whatever it is I think about it. And, um, and so that's, that's part of it. But on the other hand, 
I guess what I would say is that over the years, and in particular, you know, uh, being with Tracy, I recognize that it's it's very difficult to quantify someone's subjective experience, but it doesn't invalidate it. You know, subjective experiences happen all the time to us. And I guess what I would say is I've, I've become more careful in my view as how I um, will treat subjective forms of evidence. But I'm still at a point where like, I, I don't simply accept what someone says, um, you know, completely simply because they say it happened. I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't go there. Uh, there are too many people who just have, have lost credibility, in my opinion, over the years, and I just can't. I mean, there's people in this world, Grant, that if I were standing in a hot, burning desert with them and they were to say, oh, it's a sunny day out, I'd be looking for rain clouds. <laughs> so I don't, I don't just believe everyone. Yeah. But, but I do recognize that people have experiences that are hard to quantify, but they still happen. And so that's a really important part of us trying to understand this UFO phenomenon. And I know you, you feel very strongly about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this comes down to belief uh, versus uh, knowing. How much, you mentioned 9-11, so say 9-11, the UFO mystery, how much is going to end up becoming knowledge as compared to the various beliefs? Because you know, I mean, yeah. you can bring up any subject and it's, it's basically like, you know, whatever church and whatever Kool-Aid someone's drinking, it's a different yeah. view. It's almost mm -hmm. like it's almost like consciousness itself that we can't really nail anything really down in, in terms of especially like paranormal fields. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I sometimes occasionally will follow the uh, arguments of uh, sometimes they're called the brain wars uh, by these neurologists and they'll talk about consciousness. And some what, what do you find in that field is that all those guys, uh, most of them anyway, are such hardcore materialists. Like they, yeah. a lot of them will just argue there's no such thing as consciousness anyway. It's like it's an illusion and yeah. uh, it's all brain chemistry and neurons and electrons and uh, I mean elect electrical transmissions. And I'm like, my God, man, like those are some of the scariest people out there in my opinion. Uh, a, they're wrong. I, I mean, I'm not a neurologist, but I'm just going to say they're wrong. B, I think a lot of them are actually really dangerous because um, – it's almost as if like because they deny consciousness, they deny things like the soul. It's like you go down a slippery slope of morality and ethics where almost anything can be justified. And um, I never want to go down that road. But in general, I think uh, consciousness, you know, I, I know I've heard you say this a few times recently, and I, I think I completely agree with you, which is that consciousness is is a key. Maybe you would say the key to understanding what is going on in the UFO subject, um, I guess what I would simply say is I would qualify it by saying it's one of the keys. And um, I would still argue that we need a lot of objective data from around the world to uh, fill in this picture. But to understand what's happening, we got we have to listen to those people who are having experiences. And and then, you know, over, you know, if you go over like 70 years, 60, 70 years of of quantif of, uh, of stories of experiences, making sense out of it. I mean, some of that stuff is really strange and how to, how to form a coherent pattern is maybe one of the biggest issues that I have these days. Uh, do you think that the phenomena is making it stranger or do you think it's trying to help resolve it or is it? Oh God. Because you I, get this trickster idea that, yeah. you know, George Hansen brings up and that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they're, they're playing with us sort of dragging us from one breadcrumb to the next. 
I, I really agree with that. George Hansen, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned him. He's <clears throat> someone in this field who is not well enough known in my view. Um, very, very brilliant guy. Another one who uh, brought this up with me a few years ago was, um, um, oh my God, I'm now I'm drawing a complete blank and I know him so well. He did the, um, all the books on the cattle mutilations, um, um, co-hosted Gene Steinberg's Paracast, Chris O'Brien. Oh, uh, Chris O'Brien, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Chris, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. Uh, he's a great guy and smart. And Chris O'Brien once said to me that not only are so many of these elements of the UFO phenomenon seemingly contradictory or seemingly, um, you know, leading in different directions, but they often seem to contradict themselves, like the different explanations of what we're dealing with. Are we dealing with an extraterrestrial hypothesis? Are we dealing with an interdimensional hypothesis? Are we dealing with time travelers? Are we dealing with black budget? Um, you know, because there's all of these different ways we can try to explain, right, what this phenomenon is. And in his opinion, um, they not only led in different directions, depending on what case you're looking at, but he, he felt that they contradicted each other in various points. And so there's this trickster phenomenon going on. And it really makes me wonder about this um, hypothesis people call the simulation hypothesis. Yeah. You, you ever follow this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, I think that there's a lot to it. And uh, it's it's frustrating to me because I can't prove it. It may be inherently unprovable. I don't know. But the idea that we're all being played, essentially, like a like a big video game or in some simulation by some super intelligent entity that's created this reality. And in my view, that may be the, one of the only things that explains some of the odd synchronicities that people report because uh, it seems to go beyond straight up causality, like a Newtonian mechanistic uh, universe for sure, uh, where, where causality itself is open to question. And honestly, the, the further down this road I go in this field and in life, the, the more, uh, difficult it is for me to just nail down like what I think reality is. I think it's a very, very complex thing. And this phenomenon that you and I and so many other people study is um, is a gateway into understanding some of those complexities. But I have a long way to go before I really figure out what I what I think. In some it, it, you've been at this for a couple of decades, I guess, now. Yep. Um, yeah. Have you run up against this bizarre nature of the phenomena, like in, whether it's a sighting, synchronicity, or have you, have you been sort of dragged into this, or are you able to sort of sit on the <laughs> sidelines and watch? I was dragged in by, absolutely dragged in. So when I, <laughs> I started researching this in the early 90s, 93 and 94 were the years that I really started. And at that time, it's so funny, I think back, I was still in the academic world, and uh, my whole world, uh, and this, you know, you've done this too, is, was just documents, history, yeah. historical documents and nailing down concrete facts. It's all of yeah. us. Yeah. And, um, I stumbled onto the UFO topic at that time. And I, for me, it was a really simple thing. It was purely intellectual. It was no experience like what you had years ago. I just wanted on an intellectual basis to know, is this, is this a thing? Is this a, a real thing? as people have claimed, or is it absent from our history as academics seem to treat it? What's the, what's the story? I didn't like having a big question mark hanging over my head on something that I thought was, you know, something that people talked about all the time. There was always this talk of, of a UFO cover-up, even in the early 90s. And I thought, I'm just going to resolve this because here I am studying the world of 1950, 19, late 1940s. 
And um, I thought I would take a few months out of my life, honestly. That's, and I thought that's all it would take for me to resolve. And that turned into yeah. 25 years. And, and through that, so I started out as um, ultra nuts and bolts in my form of research. My first book, UFOs in the National Security State, came out in 2000 originally. And it was, um, I'm still very proud of that book. It was a, a careful, as careful as I can make it, a, a historical narrative. And I used to say back in those days, uh, all the time, I said, I don't even care. I don't care what other people think. I don't even care what I think. All I care about is what the data can show me about this phenomenon. And I said that all the time. But what I learned pretty quickly on, like in by 01, 02, 03, I was already looking into things like remote viewing, for instance, because... Oh, is that right? And I, oh, yeah, I was. In fact... Uh, I uh, started a correspondence back in those early years with Hal Putoff, uh, with Ingo Swan. I spent an evening in the home of Ingo Swan back in, I think it was 2002 or so. Uh, Joe McMonagall I talked with back then, Lynn Buchanan, Russell Targ. Like I knew all those, all those folks way back then and was um, trying to understand. I got into remote viewing because I, I learned that a lot of these remote viewers, you know, psychic spies hired by the CIA and the U.S. Army – were not only accurate in the things that they were seeing relating to like Soviet submarines and the like, but they were seeing, every one of them were seeing extraterrestrials. And that's yeah. what got my attention. And I thought, well, I'd like to know more about this. And so early on, I, I started to ask myself, well, how is it even possible that such a thing like remote viewing can work? Like how, how is it possible in the structure of our reality, the fabric of reality that a human being can see something thousands of miles away or even more interesting perhaps in another time because that happened uh -huh. so what does that say about the nature of space and time and well then i started asking physicists i talked to Butoff about this he studies physics and you learn about what big bang physics will tell you that like a big bang physicist won't say that there was a big explosion in space no <laughs> when i was a kid that's what i always thought big explosion in space no the big bang was the creation of space and of time. Yeah. And that's when my brain just goes poof, like I can't handle that. But that's that's the truth, apparently. So that means time and space have a point of origin. They're finite in a sense. That means, in theory, as I visualize it, you could one could step outside of space and time. What's that? Well, I don't know. That's timelessness. That's spacelessness. And I think I early on decided in my own unscientific manner – that, that somehow remote viewers and other psychics were stepping outside of that space-time reality that we normally inhabit. I, I don't know what else I could, how else I could visualize it. And then I asked, well, what part of us a, a person can do that? And I thought, well, ancient people had a word for it. They called it the soul as good a word as any. Uh -huh. And so from early on, like, so my study of UFOs got me into some of these more fringy, subjects you know as a public person in the field i for a long long time i i felt very very constrained from going full on into some of the into into the fringe i guess i could say because i always felt like i had a a position that i wanted to defend in this field publicly you know and i didn't i didn't want to expose myself i mean ufos are tough enough you know it's like rodney dangerfield they don't get no respect and <laughs> and i didn't want to um amplify that by going into yet more and more fringe. But the, the problem is, of course, this is what reality is. 
that's just how it is. And after a certain while, you just have to make a, a decision and, and you decide, am I going to talk about this or not? And how will I talk about it? And so on. So I, I feel like I've been dragged inch by inch over the years uh, into into consciousness and into uh, the unprovable. And then uh, being with Tracy for the last two years and now we're married. I'm like, look, you know, the world knows that I'm married to a remote viewer. <laughs> just put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> just, so I, I have no problem discussing any of this now. But I still will maintain that, you know, people who have highly subjective claims like they just can't expect someone like me anyway just to say oh yes I believe every word you say like can't do that so I need something and this this goes with um not even so much people who have psychic phenomena but people who like like the whistleblowers that are out there who will make claims based on zero evidence I mean no evidence and they just expect people to to accept it and I think that's a bad uh habit Okay, so what do you like, think about like the free study where you got four thousand experiencers and you get these sort of bizarre patterns where you know thirty seven percent have had near death experiences, forty two percent have had downloads, forty percent said at one point they knew the answer to everything in the universe. I mean, that would be like a study in in drug study, you know, like take this drug, how do you feel? You yeah, know, yeah. what's happening? Uh, do, do you deal with the free study? Have you got in, written anything about it? I haven't written about it. I know I've known about it for a while and I'm so glad that they've done this study and I consider it very valuable. Like that's really important information. This is the kind of uh, research that people need to continue doing, honestly. So um, I think, you know, I I take those conclusions very seriously and and I have no reason to doubt the objectivity of of how that was done or the methodology. I mean, I'm just going on the assumption that they did it right. So yeah, like the whole idea of downloads. Yeah. Um, And, and they've sort of tied it all. Like I always describe it like uh, supposedly the CIA called it phenomenology, that it's all tied together, that it's it's not just UFOs, it's remote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. And one of the things I mentioned on my show last night is it's kind of a, you brought up remote viewing, a bizarre little idea about remote viewing. Uh, if you read uh, Jim Schnabel's book about remote viewing, uh, he describes this case with the DIA has yeah. where, where they have in 1988, they're doing the remote viewing thing is in trouble. They want to can the program and they go to the Senate Intelligence Committee and uh, they bring in uh, two remote viewers and they're supposed to sort of prove that this stuff is for real. They give them a target. I think it was uh, Saddam's uh, chemical factory or something to give them a target and they nail this target. But the people that were in the room is number one was Cohen, uh, William Cohen, who, as you remember, Steve Greer tells a story that he tried to recover uh, um, um, Cooper's video from the 1950s where it lands, you know, this thing where he gave the oh, material there. Yeah. And uh, um, Chris Chris Mellon worked for him at, in the Senate Intelligence Committee, and Chris Mellon also worked with, with him when he was the Secretary of Defense. So that's the one guy. There's four senators there, and yeah. that's the one. And the other three are Stevens, Glenn, and Inouye, the same guys that helped get the money for the UFO thing. So you see these tie-ins that these same senators who were working with Reed were back in the 1980s working on remote viewing and, and providing funding for that. They're kind of their own little senatorial invisible college. Yeah, it's, and it sort of shows like this is all like when Reed did the ATIP program, he was uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. He was connected to the Senate yeah. Intelligence Committee. So you see these subjects are being brought up, whether it's remote viewing or whether it's UFOs, that whether you know it or not, I mean, Senate Intelligence Committee is bringing people in and, and reviewing this stuff. And that's kind of the highest level of, you know, it's not the House, it's the Senate. It's it's the big boys. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to go back to your point about the downloads and the, the yeah. study because we just – I mean I like the segue that you did, but I just want to uh, make one one final point about that, which is yeah. that I think what you said, 42% of the, the uh, experiencers had, had downloads yeah. of one sort or another. Um, so that's that's an interesting fact. But, of course, that's a different thing from saying that all downloads are true. Like, you know, we still have yeah. to come down to the question, at least I do, of of how to characterize uh, someone's downloaded or their alleged downloaded information and what what, how, what do I make of it? Um, are they all, you know, a more interesting question, I, I don't know if the free study does this, is to compare the quality of those specific downloads or categorize them. Do they fall into certain categories? Do they, um, do they give contradictory information? Like, for example, if you look through the history of channeling uh, in the last uh, yeah. 50, 60 years, like UFO channeling, um, I mean, they, they're not consistent. I mean, they're just, they tell totally different kinds of uh, realities. You know, the whole history of Ash Sharp Command. I did a little bit of a study of that, and through the 50s and 60s and 70s, I mean, they just evolved into totally different types of messages. And it just seems a little unrealistic for me to think that those are all legitimate channeled information. But if they weren't legitimate information, then the question is, what were they? And the answer is, I don't know. Is it something that just comes out of someone's subconscious and they think it's true? They go into another altered state? Maybe. Yeah. I think, well, like, we at have least to you've got that, the so. data where you can review it, because I know they had – uh, they had the two at the uh, quantum physics papers. These uh, One was a doctor out of New York City, and one was just some ordinary guy, a Latino guy in Florida, and they'd both come up with this paper. And they had been given to uh, Edgar Mitchell and to Rudy Shield to yeah. say, okay, does this stuff make sense? I mean, and basically the only thing I was able to determine, because they were sort of, sort of off the record type stuff, but was, well, it's not crazy stuff. I mean, it, it's sort of in the ballpark. They can't really tell, you know, is this the real deal? And that's what I say about this material is, you know, you can, you, the thing is to study it. Like people are sort of ignoring right. it and saying it's anecdotal. It really doesn't mean anything. And I don't care if you give them lie detector tests or whatever you do, but at least talk to these people. If you've got that many people who are doing this, it's, it's prime yeah. material that you can grab. And perhaps they actually have, because I wrote this book called Inspired, where I looked at uh, Nobel Prizes. So you look at, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the whole, even the idea of the um, uh, scientific method came in a dream. The idea of the uh, periodic table came in a dream. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, when, when he got the, the toboggan um, vision, he said, um, I knew I had to understand that dream. In fact, you could say, and I would say, that my entire career was based on a meditation upon that dream. Yeah. So you start seeing this kind of stuff that the potential is so dramatic to sort of uh, get some material. And the, I guess the problem with free is you don't you just don't have the, you know, you got 4,000 experiencers. You just don't have the people to go through that material. Because I asked them about the one with the, uh, I don't know if you followed, I do the one with the people flying the craft. 14% of all experiencers say they've been allowed to fly the craft. And I've got 48 of them that I've talked to or interacted with. And when you ask them, how do you do it? Everybody, everybody says exactly the same thing. You use your mind. And so yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, why, why don't we look at this? Why don't we send out another survey to these 14% of experiencers? And Ray said, well, the people have all these experiences on the craft. And I said, well, yeah, sure. But when they start flying the craft and you can actually nail this down and, and they're saying it's consciousness driven, uh, don't you think we should look at this? But they really I have totally the agree to with it. you. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, this is I, I also I mean, the um, the data, wh whatever these people's experiences are like we I agree completely. We should be listening to what they have to say because there's gold in there. I mean, um, 
the idea about dreams, by the way, is really interesting. Tracy and I have been talking about this very, very same thing, and it's it's great that you wrote that book. Um, the idea of dreams uh, being so significant in the history of human innovation. It's actually really, uh, I don't think people really appreciate it fully enough. So it is very important. So whatever is going on in these downloads or these visions that people have had, we should be uh, paying attention because there's probably uh, a deep wisdom in at least a lot of it and uh, some potentially really amazing revolutionary ideas as well. Uh, you mentioned Tracy in the beginning of this conversation. I'll just say this. Tracy has the most incredible dreams of anyone that I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, most incredible. She'll have dreams that will dis- that will describe like seemingly future technology that she'll wake up, describe it to me, and I'm like, what the hell? What did you just dream? <laughs> like they're, they're unbelievably specific, describing incredibly particular forms of technology. I wish I could think of something off the top of my head. I can't, but she writes them down. So like, she's got a whole, yeah, that, I mean, it's, that's, just, it's, it's, un, it's unreal. It's, un, yeah. it's unreal. Like, I don't know where she is. She's an alien. She is like my extraterrestrial <laughs> life. I'm pretty convinced about that. And that's the thing is to log them into to to view that material because when you do it and I had the I have had two download experiences and and I think Tracy can probably back this up is it's not an ordinary dream it it comes with absolute certainty that you know like Einstein said yes. you know, I knew I had to understand this dream he knew it was significant and right. that's the the part where um, it, are they tapped into something so you can do the study whether it's channeling or whatever and you can discount it but. There's really nobody doing any sort of major studies on these people who are walking around saying, I remember one woman showed me at, at contact, this is two years ago, she showed mm-hmm. me her cell phone. It had this paper with all these mathematical formulas. It's like 25 pages long. And I said, oh, yeah, you, you, you got that in a download? She said, yeah. And, and then I said, well, that's pretty cool. And then she said, I'm a secretary. I've never taken science. I went, what? That's like. And then, of course, I made the mistake of giving her a business card and saying, contact me. And she never did. Oh. But when you get these people walking around, it's just like um, just bizarre. I mean, well, you're right. I mean, that's something you'd want to show a mathematician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, that, look that, this over, please. Yeah. And then you wonder, you know, are we being led? And, and that leads us to what I want to make sure we talk about the government or, you know, we're government, they say, uh, whatever the intelligence behind the phenomenon is that they may be leading us, guiding us, giving us material, giving us hints or whatever. So mm-hmm. let's get to the government. Yeah. Uh, have you seen, uh, did you see put offs, um, uh, speech uh, last week. It's been uh, transcribed. Steve Bassett has it. Uh, I just talked to Bassett uh, recently, and he was transcribing. I have okay. not. No, I haven't seen Putoff's speech. I'm absolutely interested in listening to it. Uh, like you, I've known Hal Putoff for a long time. Had many conversations with him, and my understanding. Uh, you can probably explain this um, to listeners better because I think it sounds like you've you've read it, but. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that he really put a lot of uh, information like very candidly out there relating to the UFO subject and the extraterrestrial phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was it was pretty, uh, pretty revealing, but nothing I really hadn't seen before. Like you talked about the metal, the arts parts thing that, that yeah. Linda had. And uh, the one thing that sort of struck me, and I guess I can sort of get your opinion as to what's really going on, because I've always had the impression that um, – there's really going to be nothing that's absolutely solid because if they want to disclose, they can stand up and disclose. I mean, Valet said this in 1985 when when he and Heineck were offered an insight on on a program and stuff. And he said, well, if you've got this material, why don't you just release it? What do you, what do you need us to be in this thing? And they turned it down. And so uh, one of the things I noticed in this in this speech, and he did it twice. And this is something that um, 
I've I've had a question about is the the whole thing how this thing started. Um, there he's again spinning the story, and I I, I think he's whether he misunderstands or or whatever that the New York Times broke this story, and I always maintain it was the New York Times, Washington Post, and Political all went on the same day, which I think would be sort of down your alley that you know they're on puppets on a string. Can you do this story for us? And in this presentation, again, he brings up the fact that the New York Times did it. They did this investigative reporting and that they, they was followed by the Washington Post, CNN and stuff. And yeah. I'm saying, no, it's it's the uh, and when you put it together, when you under I think when you understand, I it, think the Post uh, article came out the following day, if I'm not mistaken, Grant. And the I political, thought, yeah. I think political came out. Uh, I should really we should check the dates on this. Yeah. I thought the New York Times broke it. I think they were first among those three. And Politico absolutely was like right on the heels of it. Um, in fact, Politico had information that the New York Times and the Post did not. Um, yeah, and, and the Post had the, better yeah. information. And the Post, like that, the thing is, they're independent stories that the Post was shown documents. Uh, Politico said when the, the interview that, the, that the Bender did with uh, uh, National Public Radio later, he said that his source had told him that hinted that there was other programs, CIA and other programs. Right, right. Exactly. And, and, and so the key is when you put them together, if you sort of assume that, you know, the Washington Post or just is sort of imitated the story, they didn't have a story, Politico didn't, that it was basically it was a New York Times story, then it's one story. But if you look at it as they all had independent stories, then it's a different thing because that's the whole big argument that you've been in, I've been in, is this thing is what the hell's the name of this program? And if you look, the, the New York Times calls it Advanced Aerospace. If you look at Washington Post, they call it Advanced Aviation. If you look at Political, they call it Advanced Aviation. So if they're being fed this story, they were fed different names, almost like it was an intentional thing to throw us off and to us, for us to all argue about what's the name of the program. And yep. that they were actually given these names, and they're they're all using different names on basically the same day. That's a really good insight, and uh, that that actually confirms my own strong uh, feeling about this. Is that a look? I just say to people, and I, I firmly believe this: that never trust anything coming out of the Washington Post or New York Times. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, right or left wing. That's totally irrelevant. What they are yeah. is they are uh, servants and partners, really, to the national security apparatus, and that's they've done that for years. You know, for decades, they were part of the um, uh, Operation Mockingbird program, which and that's really never stopped. Uh, Mockingbird has continued uh, and deepened, in my view. It's not just a CIA media manipulation. It's CIA plus Pentagon national security manipulation of the Pen of uh, the media. And it goes on. Um, so as far as the actual name of the program, it's a really good point. And then, of course, uh, I'm sure you're familiar. I, I interviewed an a re Australian researcher a couple of months ago, Paul yeah. Dean, yeah. who talked about another uh, name that he found of the program. And, and you know, uh, and there was leaked to Yeah, the AAW SAP advanced. Right, but he, he got someone from the Pentagon phoning him, which makes me wonder. Like, why are they phoning some guy? It's it's like, okay, let's stick the next piece of the puzzle in here. Let's let's stir it up some more. Like he did, he didn't discover that. He he got a phone call to look at this. Yeah, new that's name, right. right. That's from right. The Pentagon. Yeah, and uh, from and, his contact, he had a he had a very he said impeccable contact there. That's right. So there's a lot of these names floating around apparently, and um, it's almost like one of those, uh, you know, um, uh, limited hangouts. A little bit, a little bit of a limited hangout in the sense like you put something out there, but information that you're able to run away from. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I say that's the the basic thing because yeah. if you if you look at when John Greenwald checks with uh, Major Harris at the Public Affairs Office in the Pentagon, she says no, it's aviation. That is the name of the program. So about a week and a half ago, you remember Washington Post did another story on on the whole you know TTSA thing, and they used aerospace. So I immediately contacted the reporter and I said. Okay, your original story used aviation. Now you're using aerospace. Why have you changed the term? And he said, well, it's a good question. He said, uh, the, my contacts with the Pentagon, they're telling me aerospace. So you got the, you know, the Pentagon yeah, telling me Yeah, that doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what do you think is actually going on? I mean, you've played with a lot of these players, like Put Off. I know Put Off. And yeah. I know Davis. And I, I've known all these guys for many years. They've been, they, in fact, a lot of these players whether it's Alexander and stuff, these guys have been in these programs in and out. They've, you know, it's Bill Moore, it's John's group, the, uh, you know, the group that he had, the UFO working group. There's all these, right. you know, NIDs. Uh, yeah, all yeah, these, yeah. these guys just cycle through. So what do you, what's your interpretation of why these guys are involved? What's actually going on? Well, I can speak, you know, having spoken with Hal Putoff for a number of years, uh, my, my assessment of him really hasn't changed. Uh, it's that he's, He's sincere. He's. I believe he has integrity. I actually yeah. firmly believe this. Um, I believe he's uh, someone who is doing his best to, uh, let's say, work his way through the system, uh, work his way through the labyrinth. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that he's reached the center of the, of the maze. Uh, I think that he strikes me as someone who knows a lot and has a lot that's confirmed to him for sure. But whether he's one of the most inside of the – like an MJ-12 type of a person, I, I just don't think that's the case. So I think that there's access that he still um, probably would like. That's my sense. I, I don't know this. So I'm just giving my impression. Um, and that he seems firmly to believe in the um, the desirability, let's say, of ending the – you know, the bulk of the secrecy on UFOs. I, I think that he believes that. I think he genuinely believes that. Someone like Alexander, um, no idea what this, that man thinks. I just can't figure him out. I've had, I've had arguments with him, debates over the years. And um, I mean, at one point I deba he debated with me that there was no UFO cover-up. I'm like, what is, how do you, how can you possibly believe that and maintain any credibility? So I can't figure him out. Um, he, I don't know if he's, intentionally deceptive or he's just dense. Uh, yeah, there's actually dense. a question. There's actually a question where put off is asked a question about John Alexander. I'll let you read it. It's pretty funny when he, how he answers it, <laughs> but so, it is true. I mean, John, remember John always made the claim that, you know, there's, there's individual interest, but there's not institutional interest. And you don't know how the government works if you think there's yeah like there's no such interest. thing as special access programs or black budgets. I mean, come and, on. And then suddenly the program comes out. No, I, I would like to know what he says now. And I think what he's saying now is why so little. But then you go to the political thing where political was told, well, there's more than one program. This is just one exactly. Of the and and indeed, we would want to ask why so little. Twenty two million dollars over five years, it, and for the Pentagon, that's nothing. That's yeah. no, that's less than nothing practically. So. Uh, I mean, on the other hand, $22 million is still significant for most of us to, for a, something that wasn't supposed to exist at all. The fact that they spent anything on it is, is interesting. So, um, but um, there's a lot of interesting issues here as far as like what, what uh, the members of TTSA, like Hal Putoff and um, people like Eric Davis, who I think is associated with TTSA, isn't he? And, and then uh, Chris Mellon and Elizondo, like what are their actual goals? I mean, not having the opportunity for detailed 
conversations with them about this. I, I can only speculate. I mean, my, my feeling is that they are part of um, that little invisible college that we talked about before. These are, you know, these are some of the guys in the aviary. That is yeah. the informal group of people going way, way back for years who have had various types of intersection with a UFO subject in their professional career. Yeah. They're all part of that same little club and they like to talk to each other about that. But that's, so that's what the aviary was. The aviary wasn't a, yeah. you know, a major conspiracy that was a yeah. government. <laughs> that's the way it's become. So yeah. 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 Especially Never. when you know them, like you and I have interacted with these people when you, you know them, like another one is, is Kit Green. When you've interacted with these people, Absolutely. you know, these are people who are just like down the rabbit hole, the same as you and I, and trying to figure this thing out and are trying to use their contacts. Right. Uh, exactly. To figure out what's going on. Yeah, that that's it. It's like I I've never now Kit Green's a little different because he was, um, you know, pretty high level with uh, the CIA briefed Ronald Reagan on things. And he's yeah. uh, knows a lot of powerful people, um, perhaps more than most of the other people in that crowd. But the the real question is, how much of a, um, power players are these are these fellows? I mean, I don't really get the idea that any of them are at the highest level of, uh, of power, you know, within within the system They're they're um, successful and brilliant, frequently people, who uh, yeah, like you said, they just they've they're gone gone down the rabbit hole like we have. They definitely have information that we don't uh, have. That they don't share. Yeah, that's absolutely definitely the case. Like I've in the few conversations I had with with Hal and also with uh, Kit Green, I've talked with him. They're uh, both very precise types of people, and uh, they both make it very clear that they're not telling you everything they know. At least yeah, for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. It's it's an interesting uh, situation. And why do you think they they have joined up with, with the Longs operation? What do you think that whole thing is about? I've been really, you know, uh, it's good because we, when we were at uh, Contact in the Desert a week ago, I was really happy to get a chance to chat with Peter Lavenda. And um, I don't know if you've ever chatted with Peter Lavenda yet. No, no. You, you would haven't. like him very much. He's... Um, I've known him since 2011, and, and Peter really became known primarily as uh, as an expert on uh, the Nazis and their yeah. interest in the occult. And he wrote a number of books on that theme. And um, I've always felt he has absolute integrity and is a very, very good researcher as well. And when in talking with him about TTSA, he um, – you know, he, he knows Tom DeLong reasonably well and, and knows a lot of the guys in TTSA, even though he's not an explicit member of TTSA. I mean, he made it clear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, why do they hook up with Tom DeLong? I, I, to hear Peter talk about it, it was all Tom DeLong's initiative. It's not like the, the, uh, the spooks sought him out, said, oh, yeah, this is someone we can use just like we use Bill Moore or, you know, Paul Benowitz years ago, like Mirage Men type of a thing. Like there's a lot of people who have this concept about DeLong, that he's a useful idiot. I hear this all the time, that he's a tool. I hear Jimmy Church now saying this. I hear other people saying it. And I, I've never, I've never um, come to this specific conclusion. I've always held provisional thoughts on this. I mean, is, is DeLong being worked? Is he not being worked? I mean, one of the things that you, you can say is that because he cultivated these military people, um, he certainly is, has, was not like, like Greer, Stephen Greer would say, you know, they're evil. They're doing the cover up. They're um, like DeLong really has an opposite sort of approach to it. And he, he really is very sympathetic to the military. So I think that's jarring, you know, to a lot of people who are following this from the outside. Like, why are you sucking up to the military? I think is a big question that people have. But Lavenda pointed out to me that look, DeLong's motivation was 
He wanted to get information out of them. He wanted them to work with him. And you're not really going to get them to work with you by calling them out on unethical cover-ups and the like. So I get that. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm to take Peter Lavenda's insight, because I think he has a better perspective than I do on this, his very strong uh, take on it is that DeLong did the did the footwork. It's his it's his show. He's he's promoting this. He's pushing this, and he got gained the confidence of a lot of these people, and they just said, you know, this just might work. So, so that's Lavenda. You know, barring any other kind of uh, document release or inside information, I don't really know how else to interpret it. Uh, there's claims that they sought him out uh, at some barbecue from what I've yeah, heard. That, and That's my interpretation, yeah. Uh, well, well, and maybe, maybe that's so. Maybe that's so, but I, I, I would want to see the evidence for that. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's the full story or if there's something else that's behind that. Yeah, I can give you that chain. I, I uh, of, of uh, what, who, how he went from one person to another. But uh, I'd like to ask you a question about Peter. Remember, we were on the on the disclosure panel there, and mm-hmm. Peter said we don't have all the videos, which I'd sort of thought that they had all these videos and that. As did I. As did and, I. And and remember, he said we're waiting for the government to give us some more stuff, or how we would put it, we're waiting for them to declassify and give yeah. us the next piece of evidence which sort of indicated like, and so have you got any ideas? Who's well, the government? Who are they talking about? Who's actually behind I don't know, this but, that are but what, I will tell you what I did hear from another source, which was that Elizondo had more than three videos, all right, so that he had at least six. So there's three others that he is in possession of. Now, it's very likely that those other three videos are classified and he is, he is not permitted to release them. But to, to say the TTSA doesn't have any more videos than three, I would question that because I yeah, think or, that, or the idea that he's waiting, they're waiting for the government to give them some more stuff, which is which sort of struck me as if, you know, like, wow, that's yeah, that might be that might be inaccurate. Uh, it might just be that they've got them, but they don't have authorization to release them, which I would think is probably more likely the case. Um, like Elizondo would be a guy who would have the security classification, presumably to see some of these videos. So he would have them. Um, but, but does he still have a security yeah. clearance? That's another big question. Is he, did he retire? Is he, or is he still in the game? I, yeah, like I don't know. like I who's don't, the government? Who's the, who's actually doing the releasing? Have you got any ideas who that might be? I don't know. No, I don't. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, when I was talking with Peter about this at one point or another, there are a couple of things where he was definitely not not coming out uh, explicitly to say one way or the other. So, and it's, it doesn't mean that he's, you know, uh, being sneaky. It just means that he just may not be uh, at liberty. I don't know. My my sense is that there's still a lot going on here that we don't know. There's, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's something nefarious. I I'm not willing to go down that that path just yet. I want to get a little more information. I do think you know what they've done. Um, I'm so far willing to say I think what they've done is a net positive uh, for the UFO research field. I, I, I believe it. I don't think it's I, – I don't – I'm not comfortable with calling it disinformation. I, I think the New York Times and Washington Post uh, engage in disinformation, and um, and I think the New York Times coverage in particular was um, was really sneaky, actually, and, and also uh, very propagandistic. And I'll just give you a – case in point like in the um the main article glowing auras black budgets and mysterious the yeah. pentagon mysterious ufo program i mean even the title itself is uh borderline 
sensationalistic. Yeah, and it wasn't black money. It, yeah. It, no, no, it wasn't exactly. Um, but also in that article, first of all, they had two utterly gratuitous statements by skeptics, including James Oberg. I mean, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, they had nothing to add to the article, but they just bring these, they trot out these two debunkers who had nothing to add uh, substantively to the article, but they really served as just intellectual placeholders for skeptics, uh, as if to say, don't get too excited here, people. But then the other thing that they talked about were the the metal alloys that, that Bigelow uh, Aerospace supposedly had, when in fact what we're hearing explicitly is that they're not actually metal alloys. They're meta materials, very different, yeah. very different. And so what I've been wanting to know is how did metal alloys creep into that article? Because that's misinformation. It's actually wrong, and and I asked uh, someone who knew Elizondo and, and was told it wasn't Elizondo who said that. So if that's true, how did the New York Times piece, which was written by Ralph Blumenthal, Helene Cooper, and Leslie Kane, how did it get in there? And I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I, I'll have a chance hopefully to ask Leslie Kane at some point this year. I think I'll run into her. And I'm not accusing anyone. I'm just like I want to know, like how did this happen? Because yeah. that's not. Um, from what I'm understanding, how it went down. So there's, in other words, there's things in that New York Times piece. And then they said the Pentagon program ended in 2012, which, yeah. well, no, doesn't seem to have ended. Um, not at all. I heard from Lavenda that uh, Elizondo actually worked in the ATIP program right up to 2017. It didn't yeah. end in, 20, in 2012. So um, in other words, what the New York Times piece did is it it sort of took the air. I mean, it, it gave a lot of information, absolutely, but it also took some of the wind out of the sails as well. And I feel that that was intentional. You, you uh, think they were avoiding the UFO community? That was, I think, uh, it was actually, I think, uh, confirmed by Lavenda. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And that I had said before, that it's not directed at us because, you know, you and I will pick up this inconsistency in that one. And well, we're, uh, we're going to pick it to death. Like, <laughs> and plus, <laughs> they put out this Mylar balloon, which was, oh, my God, <laughs> what a gaff. Um, yeah. No, Lavenda's point, And again, I, I'm not going to argue against his point here. Right? I mean, it's a legitimate point is that he says, Look, we're not really here to talk to the UFO researchers. We're here to talk yeah. to the mainstream. Right. We want to change change the tenor of the conversation in the in the establishment media and that that is the new york times first and foremost do you think that worked um a little bit yeah i do think it worked a little bit i think that um you know in the aftermath of that you have cnn you have fox you got Car uh, tucker carlson doing a actually a really good interview with uh with david fravor yeah. uh, you know about his i mean there's so much that the mainstream has not followed up on and and this is why i think the establishment media i, I mean why do we even listen to these guys they're dinosaurs you know uh, they're so utterly irrelevant and so propagandistic. And, and I don't think, you know, there has, yeah, there has been a, a change in generally in the approach toward UFOs. And it is from that New York times piece specifically and the post and, and Politico. But then you, you look at the establishment media, there's no follow up in any meaningful way other than George Knapp. Uh, and he's sort of, yes, he's establishment, but he's also not big, big establishment. He's like regional establishments. And I think there's a difference. So from the national establishment, there's been no follow-up on um, Bigelow's alleged possession of recovered materials. Like, that's interesting. Yeah. We're talking crash potential, crash <laughs> yeah. retrievals at least potentially. Why has no one gone in and asked Robert Bigelow this? No, no self-examination of these same journalists as to why for so many years they've been dismissive of UFOs. I mean, to the point of being snarky, like the Washington Post yeah. 
Um, no follow-up of Elizondo's point, which is like, why did my superiors not seem to care about all of these unbelievable sightings? And and no no implications of the Fravor Tic Tac incident. Like that is so important. That one incident by itself has incredible not just national security implications, but like science and technology and ex- existential implications and nothing, nothing. So I, I just, I don't see that media as, as seriously looking into this. Uh, they dropped a little seed is what they did. And um, they basically just ran away from it and yeah. they're waiting maybe for the next little seed to drop. I, I mean, yeah. if they wanted a disclosure moment, they could have used a Tic Tac incident in my view to provide a serious disclosure moment and clearly it's not happening yeah i, I always saw it as like they're going after the swing voters they're really not you know trying to convince the the people who are already voting uh, do you think it's constitutional do you think what what they're doing is legal and constitutional i think uh the idea of a black budget is inherently unconstitutional so but i'm like saying this- the ttsa like they like put off in these guys would they get in it do they is oh, there rules oh. and regulations as to what's going on here well, I, I don't know that TTSA has done anything that's in violation of the law. I mean, I'm not I'm not aware of uh, anything that they've done that's that would be unconstitutional. But in terms uh, of dropping cover up, the information, like say the government, if the government is giving them documents, like how, that's my question is always how are they getting the videos out into the public? Because we've we there's millions of videos that have you know since 1947. Yeah. Uh, uh, how are they doing this? How 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 do you get around the Constitution and the law? In, in doing what they're doing in, in dropping this material into a private, whether it's Bigelow or, or Tom DeLonge's operation, how, how are they doing this legally and constitutionally? Well, I mean, officially speaking, it's the Pentagon that's doing the declassification of these videos. So, um, you know, they I mean, th- they use contractors all the time to, to get their uh, projects done. I mean, Pentagon's used to Lockheed and Boeing and Raytheon and General Dynamics and others for years and years and years that have had um, – you know, workers with as, as high or higher security clearances than Pentagon employees themselves. So, I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, the question is, is using uh, contractors at all constitutional? And I, I guess uh, that's for lawyers to work out. But I, I think for me, the issue is, is it constitutional to have unauthorized spending on a phenomenon that is in the public interest and that people need to know about? And I don't know about uh, the ATIP program itself being unconstitutional, um, but I think I am convinced that the ATIP program is the tip <laughs> of the iceberg. I think there's way, way more. You, no one's going to convince me at this point that $22 million over five years is the sum total of what they've spent on examining the most important scientific and mi- uh, military uh, phenomenon that that we're dealing with these days, and that is UFOs. There's just no way in no way in hell they're spending only $22 million for five years. Yeah. And then that comes to uh, back to this um, uh, this program with remote viewing. The other guy that was in the room was um, uh, Dick D'Amato. And you remember the testimony that that was given at Citizens Hearing by Jesse Marcel Jr. that he's you know, he tapped on the majestic book and said, this isn't fiction. He tells Jesse Marcel. And he was in this remote viewing thing as well. He was doing the uh, the. Uh, working for the Senate Appropriations Committee was because they were doing budgeting stuff for the remote viewing. So he was in the room. So he, he brings this up as well, this this idea. And he and there's one re- researcher who's actually now talking. And I mean, he's still talking about this. This he just discussed it at how this operation works, of how you've got this sort of public uh, thing where it's not responsible to the government with the money and that kind of stuff. 
Well, yeah, um, and Dick D'Amato is powerful, powerful for years and years, um, highest level Defense Department. Um, I mean, look, the rule of law, I think, has been thrown out the window in so many ways by the U.S. government for years and years and years. And the, and the UFO phenomenon, in, in my view, has been one of the core reasons for that. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the key reasons that the United States government it, in itself, in a way, has gone rogue since the 1940s. That is, if you've got a phenomenon that is so important, so powerful, uh, so valuable as the as UFOs. I mean, if any kind of crash retrievals from the 40s and onward would be of unbelievable value. So they, they want to explore that. They want to study that. And I can understand that. But what it does is it forces the whole system to go black and to go underground, as it were. You, don't, you can't tell Congress uh, about it and so that you've got to get money to pay for it and you can't tell Congress about it. So by its very nature, it creates a black budget culture that by its very nature undermines the rule of law in the United States and by extension other nations too that get wrapped up with it. I mean, you're in Canada. Canadians are intimately involved in the U.S. national security apparatus and they, um, I'm sure, make break their own um, legalities, break their own laws in pursuance of this secret as well. There's just secrecies worldwide. Yeah. It's a it's a cancer. Wow. Okay, we got less than a minute. I have, but I've got one last question. You yeah. were married by uh, Austin Fitz, Catherine Austin Fitz. Did you talk to her about this encounter she had with John Peterson, uh, the the aliens among us? Did you did you discuss that sort of stuff? Uh, not on this occasion. I talked with Catherine about that on other occasions, and and she absolutely stands by it. Late 1990s. Uh, she was in her own enemy of the state phase, like just like Denzel Washington in the movie. Yeah. Uh, people can read about it. And at that time, she was approached by John Peterson of the Arlington Institute, very powerful guy, who uh, was connected with uh, Greer uh, earlier, who said, yes, how would you like to meet an alien? We have the, in the Navy, we've got, uh, we're talking <laughs> about a, a, a future in which aliens are uh, openly described as walking among us. Would you like to meet an alien? And she, she wrote later, this is the only time in my career that I, I regretted a decision to, to learn something new. I could have learned it, and, but she was afraid that she was being set up. Wow. So I didn't talk with her about it this this one time, but we we have talked about it on other occasions. You're you're a wealth of information, Richard. Thank you for as the are, conversation, and, and let's do it again. And I'll see you in Vancouver and in Toronto, and we're going to have dinner, I think, maybe. Well, I'll be. I'm going to be following you around. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. I'll Thank send you. it back. You've been listening to The Cameron Files with Grant Cameron. Any rebroadcast or duplication of this program or program content without express written permission from the KGRA-DV is strictly prohibited. The Cameron Files, in direct cooperation with the internet website presidentialufo.com.